0: Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at morbidlybeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related from interviews, reviews, top ten lists, and of course, everything in between. Now we're going to look at some more true crime this week. An interesting case. A funny little unsolved mystery from 1987. Shout out to the 1987 crew. 35-year-olds go what? I guess some of you might be 36 now. Shit, we're getting old. In case you didn't know I was born in 1987. Anywho, this case revolves around Russell Keith Dardine, a 29-year-old family man who was accused of murdering his family. But there's a twist. Despite being the prime suspect, he was never arrested for a good reason. He was also found dead. What just happened? Well, let's find out with the case of the Dardine family murders. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Well, where do we start with a case like this? Well, let's just look at the background of the family before we get into too much detail. Now, both Dardines went by their middle names. Keith was a native of Mount Carmel and he bought a trailer in 1986 after completing the training required for his job as a treatment plant operator at the Renda Lake Water Conservatory District. There's a nearby facility, so he thought, hey, let's buy a mobile home in the area. They rented the land that their mobile home sat on from a local farming couple. Keith worked, and his wife found a job at an office supply store in Mount Vernon, Now, when the couple wasn't working, they were part of a musical ensemble at the Small Baptist Church in their local village. Keith sang lead vocals while Elaine played the piano. In 1987, Elaine became pregnant with the couple's second child. He'd be 35 years old today. Hmm, how about that? They decided to name the baby either Ian or Casey, depending on whether it was a boy or girl. (sighs) Jesus Christ how's that for a coincidence? The pending addition to the family had led Keith and Elaine to strongly consider moving, and by late in the year they had put the mobile home up for sale. However, that was not the only reason for the move. According to Joanne Dardine, Keith's mother, he had said he would move back to Mount Carmel even if he were unable to find a job before doing so, as he regretted ever having moved to Ina, telling her that the area was becoming too violent, There had been, indeed, 15 homicides in Jefferson County during the previous two years, and that's where Ina sat. There was a serial killer on the loose at the time named Thomas O'Dell, a Mount Vernon teenager who had killed his parents and three siblings as they individually returned to the house one night in 1985. I guess he wasn't a serial killer, more of a mass murderer, but still, he killed a lot of people, although O'Dell as well as some of the others charged with murder in some other cases had been convicted residents of the rural area had become fearful and stressed a friend of keith said that after a 10 year old girl had been raped and murdered in the area in may of 1987 keith became so protective of the family that one night when a young woman came by the mobile home asking if she could make a phone call he refused to let her in Now today, that doesn't sound too weird. I mean, if somebody came knocking on your door, would you let them in to use your phone? No, probably not. You probably wouldn't even answer the door. You have a ring camera or something. You'd be like, nah, I'm not going to even, I'm just going to pretend we're not home. Nope. But in the 1980s, that was not the case. Most people were like, oh shit, your car broke down. Come on in, make a phone call. We'll make a coffee. You have a tea. Sit down, relax. We'll get you sorted out. But not today. Today, everybody's like, you're going to fucking kill me. You're a 14-year-old girl. You're going to come in and then you're going to call like friends and they're going to come over and they're going to swarm kill me like they did to that guy in fucking Toronto like two weeks ago. Not going to happen. You're just not even going to answer the door. But like I said, different time, different time. Times have changed drastically. Now, it's important to note that Keith was a very reliable worker, and on November 18th, he did not report for his shift. He didn't call in sick, he didn't notify his superiors or supervisors or anything that he would not be coming into work. So, naturally, his work called him. But all phone calls went unanswered all the livelong day. His supervisor called both of Keith's parents, who were divorced but still lived near each other in Mount Carmel. Neither of them knew what had happened to their son. Don Dardine, Key's father, called the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office and agreed to drive to town in Aya with a house key to meet the deputies at the home of his son and daughter-in-law. Now, they lived between Illinois Route 37 and the former Illinois Central Railroad tracks, now used by Union Pacific, just north of the Franklin County line. Inside, they found the bodies of Elaine, Peter, and a newborn girl, all tucked into the same bed. Elaine had been bound and gagged with duct tape. Both had been beaten to death, apparently with a baseball bat found at the scene. A birthday gift to Peter from his father earlier that year. Elaine had been beaten so severely that she had gone into labor and delivered a girl who soon met the same fate as her mother and brother. Now that is disturbing. I am sorry for not giving you a trigger warning on that, but I guess it wasn't a boy after all. I guess they were going to go with the name Casey. That's so terrible. Newborn girl. Oh, so terrible. It gets worse though and I'm terribly, terribly sorry for what is coming up next. The one thing missing from the scene was Keith. He was not there. Neither was his car, which was a red 1981 Plymouth. Investigators assumed he had killed his wife and children and was at large. A team of armed police went to his mother's house in Mount Carmel looking for him. The search ended late the following day, however, when a group of hunters found his body in a wheat field not far from the trailer, just south of the Franklin-Jefferson County line near Rend Lake College. He had been shot three times. His penis was also severed. The Plymouth was found parked outside the police station in Benton, 11 miles south of the Dardine home, its interior spattered with blood. Just terrible. Now, the only reason that was so much worse is because now an entire family had been annihilated. It would have been bad enough had Keith been the sole and only suspect. It would have been not so bad if they'd found him, arrested him, and sent him to jail for the rest of his life. But that wasn't the case. Obviously not. Unless he severed his own penis and then shot himself three times. Which was unlikely. What this meant was there was a killer at large in the county. The small rural. Village, area, whatever you want to call it, now had a mass murder, a family annihilator at large. Naturally, this had a great effect on the county and the area in general. News of the killings made area residents even more fearful than they had already been. Many residents began going about their daily business with shotguns visible in their vehicles' gun racks. After high school basketball games, students would wait in the school building for their parents to come in and accompany them to the parking lot for their ride home instead of just socializing outside as they normally did. Early reports from police about the crime were limited and sometimes contradictory, allowing rumors to spread like wildfire. The two counties' respective corners differed on whether Keith had died of a head injury or being shot. Among those who reported the former, it was said that he had been inflicted when he was dragged from the car. The circumstances under which Eileen gave birth, perhaps posthumously, to her short-lived daughter gave rise to the stories that Casey, as the family wanted to call her, had been ripped from her mother's womb. Along with the mutilation of Keith's genitals, this supported speculation that Satanists were indeed at work in the area and had performed a ritual sacrifice on the family, which was unlikely, but at the time, this was around satanic fever, the mid-80s. The crime was also believed to be the work of a local serial killer who had also been believed to be responsible for three other unsolved murders in the region. Dr. Richard Garriston, a family physician who doubled as the Jefferson County Coroner, told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch in early December that many of his patients talked to him about the case and how it disturbed them. One man who said he lived a half-mile from the Dardines' trailer told Gerritsen that he was having difficulty sleeping and had lost 14 pounds due to stress, and that's something I can relate to, it's not fun, especially if you're already on the skinny side as it is. Also unable to sleep was the Dardine's landlord's daughter, who told her parents years later that she kept her bedroom light on and read all night out of fear. Robert Lewis, the Franklin County Coroner, felt much of the fear was unjustified, saying, quote, I don't think this is a rational basis for the near hysteria. He told the newspaper, Adding, the people are frightening each other. People were so afraid, he said, that if someone ran out of gas in the county, he would not seek assistance in any nearby homes, but would instead walk to the nearest highway and hitch a ride. Which is also a good way to die. Let's just get it out of there. How many hitchhikers disappear every year, or how many hitchhikers are responsible for murders every year? Yeah, uh, I don't know if it's safer to go to somebody's house, but I also don't know if it's safer to hitch a ride. Either way, 1980s, different time. Local police agencies did indeed join forces with the Illinois State Police to investigate the crime. A total of 30 detectives worked full-time, following leads and interviewing hundreds of people. None of what they found proved fruitful. A man taken into custody early on was released after being questioned. Likewise, a co-worker of Keith, with whom he reportedly had been having a dispute with, was cleared. No one who knew the couple on a personal level had anything bad to say about them. A small quantity of marijuana was found in the trailer, but not enough to suggest they were involved in dealing drugs. Police even believed the marijuana might have been inadvertently left behind by the killer or killers. The autopsies found no drugs or alcohol in any of the victims. The coroners put the time of death for all the Dardines within an hour of each other. The bodies in the trailer had been killed 12 hours before they were found, and Keith Dardine had been dead for about 24 to 36 hours when he was found. Resolving this question, however, made it harder to determine how the crime had been committed since Keith's body was found pretty far away from the trailer and he may have been killed at the location rather than with his family. At the trailer, the killer or killers had apparently taken the time to not only tuck Elaine's body into bed along with her children's bodies but also to clean up the scene, suggesting they did not feel any urgency to leave. The amount of effort involved led police to theorize that the crime may have taken place at night The trailer was on Route 37, which is a busy state highway, but could not be seen at the time, from Interstate 57, almost 2,000 feet to the west. There's also an open question as to whether there was one killer or multiple. In a case like this, motive is always very important. What happened? Why did it happen? Now, determining the motive of the assailant or assailants was a particularly difficult part of the case. The back door had indeed been left open, but there was no evidence of forced entry. A VCR and portable camera were in plain sight in the living room, so nobody stole anything. Elsewhere in the house, equally accessible cash and jewelry remained. These facts argued against robbery as the motive. Elaine had not been raped or sexually assaulted in any way either. Police also found no evidence of any extramarital affairs involving either Keith or Elaine that might have motivated the other party to a jealous rage. A stack of papers with sports scores found in the house led them to wonder whether Keith might have maybe had some gambling debts but probably not, which was basically confirmed when the mother, Joine Dardine, told police her son was so frugal that he raised money for his young son's college fund by reselling 50-cent cans of soda at work for a small profit. Despite the widespread fear the case engendered, Lewis, the Franklin County coroner, did not believe the Dardines were randomly chosen, saying, "quote I believe it was a very personal, deliberate thing, he told the Post-Dispatch. A police expert on cults told the newspaper that rumors of Satanists were responsible was untrue, since such groups often would mutilate bodies more extensively, harvest organs, and leave symbols and lit candles at the scene of their crimes. None of these indications had ever been found in the Dardines trailer. Police did allow, however, for the possibility that while the Dardines were chosen purposely, it may have been a case of mistaken identity by the killer or killers. Joanne Dardine later said that she had considered other motives someone might have for killing her son and his family, saying, quote, I think someone wanted Keith to sell drugs and he refused. She said that in 1997. She went on to say, There's a possibility someone liked Eileen and she wouldn't accept his advances and he took his rage out on both of them. But we just don't know. Eventually police exhausted all leads and had to start working other cases. Two FBI profilers came to the area to review evidence. They were able to make some suggestions but generally found that the crime defied their typical analytical methods. Joine Dardine worked to keep the public from completely losing interest. Throughout the 1990s she regularly called one detective still assigned to the case offering potential leads she had learned of, or asking for any new information she could share. She gathered 3,000 signatures from the area residents on a petition to The Oprah Winfrey Show, asking producers to do a segment on her son's killing. They turned her down, saying the crime was too brutal for daytime television, which is fairly true. America's Most Wanted had a similar reaction at first, but then changed his mind and ran a segment in 1998. The show did not generate any new leads. Police were indeed briefly interested in serial killer Angel Maturino Resendiz, I probably butchered that, I'm sorry, then known by his alias Rafael Resendiz Ramirez. After he surrendered himself to police in 1999, he often traveled around the county by hopping freight trains, choosing his victims near the tracks they traveled, and often beating them to death. While those elements were indeed present in the Darden killings, police were never able to connect him to the crimes in Illinois. Now, that's going to be the end of part one here. We have more to go over, lots and lots to go over for next week. So, with that, my name is Casey, and this has been the Ominous Origins Podcast. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a five-star rating on Spotify or Apple iTunes. Any messages or any reviews that you leave that have a five-star rating will be read out on the show and you get a shout-out. If you just want to talk to me and ask me some questions or leave a post on a wall or on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, you can do so. Instagram, I have been posting a lot of stories lately, so go feel free to check those out. And that is at Ominous Origins Pod or on Facebook at Horror Shots. I'm still on Twitter, but I never ever use it. So if you want to find me there, you can do so at Horror Shots, Prod as in production. So until next week.